0: and on the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. In today's message, we continue our series on the Kingdom of God, looking at the Articles of Faith of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. Today, we begin looking at Article 4, which states, We believe in the doctrine of original sin and impotency of man's recovery in and of himself from the fallen state which he is in by nature. You may recall that the last few messages we preached dealt with the doctrine of election from our third article of faith. This article of faith about original sin and the inability of man to recover from it explains the necessity for the doctrine of election. You see, there's a reason that salvation has to be solely and wholly of God. Man can't recover from the fallen state he's in because of the sin of Adam. Today we begin looking at that fallen state and we see just how exceeding sinful sin is and just how exceedingly impotent man he is to recover himself. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit.
1: Down at the
0: Turn if you will to the fifth chapter of Romans. We're going to read a very familiar verse here as we continue our study on our articles of faith. In Romans chapter five, in verse twelve, we read the following: Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We've just completed Article 3 of our Articles of Faith, which dealt with the doctrine of election. And we spent several messages talking about that because there's quite a bit to talk about. Quite frankly, a lot that needs to be covered when we talk about, first of all, the fact that the doctrine of election is in the Scripture and secondly there are several objections to the doctrine of election that are often raised in the world and we we talked about those we talked about how that um god in the ninth chapter of romans inspired paul to go ahead and deal with those objections i love the way the lord anticipates um what we would do you know god knows us better than we know ourselves (laughs) so he knew exactly what the objections would be and he dealt with them but this morning I want to move on to the fourth article of faith, which answers the question, why is election necessary? You know, sometimes you might ask the question, why the doctrine of election? Why is election in the scripture? Why is it necessary to be there? Why is it necessary for, for our eternal redemption? Why can't it just be by free will? Why can't man just make a decision or work hard enough? You know, here in America, we kind of have a work ethic, don't we? We, we like those folks that pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And that rugged individualism of, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it on my own. And that's been really a detriment in some ways to the true teachings of the Word of God, I'm afraid. But we as Americans, we don't, you know, I've often said that when it comes to the kingdom of God even you know if you're a rugged individualist nobody's going to tell me what to do you're not going to enjoy the kingdom of god (laughs) now we're all that by nature i understand that so we have to not only though put down our own nature but uh, forsake the teachings of the world in order to 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 thrive and to prosper in the kingdom of god but coming down to our eternal redemption why is election necessary well article four of our articles of faith tells us the reason, basically. And Article 4 reads as follows. It says, We believe in the doctrine of original sin and impotency of man's recovery in and of himself from the fallen state which he is in by nature. Now, the doctrine of original sin, we're going to talk about it here in a minute, but it simply means that when Adam sinned in in a representative way, everyone sinned. We all fell in Adam. Before we get to that, though, I I want to talk about sin for a minute. Why why is election necessary? Why did God have to save us? And why can't we just do what we need to do to get to heaven? And, And I believe the answer lies in the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Remember the nature of God, that He is holy, 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 thrice holy. When, when Isaiah saw Him high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6, and, and he got a, a real view of God. He got a view of God as He really is. And, and He was seated on His throne. He was high and lifted up. His train filled the temple, and there was glory that surrounded Him, much like, I believe, the glory that attended the angels that came down to the shepherds to announce the birth of Jesus. It was that glory of of the heavenly hosts. And and you remember what Isaiah did? Isaiah didn't walk up to the throne of God and say, Hey, old buddy, old pal, I've been wondering when you were going to show up. (laughs) I've been doing your your work down here and doing a pretty good job of it. Now come on down and help me, we'll finish it. (laughs) That's not what Isaiah did. Neither did John, even on the Isle of Patmos, when John was, uh, you know, John had laid his head on Jesus' breast. When he was here as a man. This was the, John was called the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he identified himself in the book of John. But when when Jesus showed up in his glorified state, his friend, his friend who he had taken comfort from and, and loved so dearly, when he showed up in his glorified state, John didn't run up to him and throw his arms around him and say, man, I've been waiting on you. It's about time. John fell at his feet as dead. Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah and John and even Ezekiel and all those who ever saw God in his glory, anyone who ever was in the presence of God, high and lifted up, they've recognized the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And the, the contrast between our condition and the position of God, the holiness of God. As a matter of fact, I believe the whole Old Testament leading up and culminating in the law and the temple worship, the whole Old Testament, uh, Old Testament worship, the Old Testament economy was given to us to show us just how exceeding sinful sin really is. With every bleat of a sacrificed lamb, with, every, with the bloody flow of that kidron brook over there, with the, the harshness of the law and the, and the penalties therein, everywhere we look, we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Over in Romans chapter 7, Paul begins to deal with the law and himself. When compared to the law, in verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? You know, we look on the law sometimes as a bad thing. Sometimes we say, oh, that old law. Oh, that law. You know, everybody wants to blame the law. The problem's not the law. (laughs) The problem is us. We're told later on that uh, the law is spiritual. The law was a good thing, but I'm carnal, Paul says, sold under sin. He says in verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid... Now, here's, now listen to this, nay, I had not known sin, that didn't say he wouldn't have been a sinner. But he said, I wouldn't have known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, he had lust, but he wouldn't have known it, except the law had said, thou shalt, take, thou shalt not covet. Let's keep reading here and we'll see some important truths about what the law, the purpose of the law but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for without the law sin was dead in other words I didn't recognize sin I didn't understand just how bad it was now I understand let me just stop here and say I understand that in every regenerated child of God there is a conscience the law is written in their hearts and the, and, and there's a sense of sinfulness there when you do something wrong I understand that if you've been born again you have a sense of sinfulness when you do something wrong but you don't understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin until you understand what god's word really really says do you remember when uh, when josiah the young king the temple worship had been shut down for about two generations two kingships and and it had been destroyed and, and and idols had been set up in the temple and outside the temple and the true worship of god had been forgotten but when that young king took the throne he sent them in there to clean out the temple and they found the book of the law in the temple in that, that's a that's a message in and of itself. <laughs> I can't find my Bible. Where is it? Where's my Bible? Well, it's at church. <laughs> it means you hadn't been there to get it. <laughs> if, if that's where you, where you lost your uh, where you lost your Bible. But anyway, they lost the book of the law in the temple. And when he found the book of the law and they brought it out and they read it to him, that young king who was a godly king repented in sackcloth and ashes. Because he was finally recognizing just how bad he was, just how far off the mark he had had gone. And you see, the purpose of the law is to point us to the exceeding sinfulness of sin. As we continue reading there, he says in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In other words, I lived like I wanted to and it didn't bother me too badly. But then I saw the law and I realized how far off I was. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion uh, by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy. People want to blame the law. It's not the law's fault. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which was good made death Unto me, God forbid, now listen, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Let me just, as an aside, say this. Do you know one of the most important things that you can get out of coming to church? It's a sense of just how great sin is in the sight of God. That's one of the most important things that we can learn here. And if if you're not learning it at the church you're going to, you need to change churches. (laughs) Because like Brother Lonnie Mazingo said the other night when he was preaching, he started telling us how wicked sinners we were. And he said, you know, there's just a few people, primitive Baptists among them, that'll amen that. (laughs) Amen. I am an exceeding sinful sinner, but I have an exceeding great Savior, you see. That's the beauty of understanding grace and understanding how exceeding sinful is. So he says here that the commandment shows us that sin is exceeding sinful. And that word exceeding sinful means especially wicked, preeminently sinful. And that reminds us, does it not, of what we're told about God. Like, for instance, over in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, we're told that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil and can't not look upon iniquity. That doesn't mean he doesn't see it and know what's happening, but he will not tolerate it in his presence. There is no wicked thing that can exist. I believe if we were to show up in the presence of God right now in the condition we're in, I just think we would be zapped away. I don't, we couldn't stand it. We'd just be obliterated. Because God cannot abide sin. Sin is exceedingly sinful. Sin is an abomination in his sight. It is an abomination. He tells us over in, I believe, Proverbs chapter 6, he lists seven things that God hates, and he says that are an abomination in his sight. Now, that's, that's pretty bad. That literally means a disgusting or an abhorrent thing. It's not just that he's mad about it or he's scared of it or he doesn't want to see it. He's disgusted by it. You know, over there in Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about the corrupt communications coming out of our mouths, that word corrupt there means putrefied, rotten. Some of us that live on a farm know what it's like to walk up and find a dead cow or some kind of dead animal that's been there for a while, and it's disgusting, it's putrefying, it's putrefied, and it repulses us, and that's the way it is with God and sin. Let me say, well, preacher, I do some good works. I have some righteousnesses that, that, that I think I could lay up on the altar of eternal redemption uh, on my behalf. Well, let's, let's just see what the Lord thinks about those righteousnesses. Over in Isaiah chapter 64 in verse 6, here's what he says about those righteousnesses. He says, but we are all as an unclean thing. Well, we're starting out pretty bad, aren't we? <laughs> So something's wrong with us inherently, innately. We are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All that we do, righteousnesses, that means good works of righteousness. Things that we would look upon from the outside and say, that's a pretty good thing to do. You know, it's a good thing to give money to the poor. It's a good thing to give give a percentage of your income to the church. It's a good thing to go help somebody out of a ditch. It's a good thing. There's good things that we ought to do out there, but the problem is is that if we take those good things and we try to lay them up on the altar of eternal redemption, God says they're nothing but filthy rags. I know I've told you this, and I just won't belabor it, but, but it's kind of like when I was living by myself in, in Tuscaloosa in that apartment. I have shared that with you where I was pretty bad about not washing my clothes because I didn't know how to... Didn't know how to run a washing machine, didn't want to learn. I figured if I learned how to run it, I'd have to do it. So I was supposed to bring them home every week to Mama, you know, and I'd forget. And then, you know, a week would go by and two weeks would go by and three weeks would go by. Finally, after about a month, she'd go over there and she'd go to get them. Uh, I'm saying this to my shame, by the way. You young men uh, don't follow my example here. But she'd go over there to get them and they'd be in a big pile and, and you know what happens, you know, if, it's, if it was just one, it, you know, after it had been there two or three weeks, it probably, you know, one undershirt or one, one pair of pants or so it probably wouldn't smell real good. But what happens when you pile filthy rag on top of filthy rag? You just got a big old mess. You got a pile, and, it, and, if, and, and for you young men there, if, if you're thinking about following my path, it'll also get you in trouble with your mama. <laughs> So she was not happy when she'd go over there with this big old pile. Oh, it's, it's terrible. Well, that's, my point is this, is when you take a filthy rag, and those weren't filthy, by the way. I'm not a filthy person. They weren't just filthy. But if you take a filthy rag and you put another filthy rag on top of it and another filthy rag on top of it, and you take it and you lay it on the altar of eternal redemption, what's God going to do? It's going to be a foul odor in his nostrils. He's not looking for your filthy rags. And your filthy rags will not redeem you. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. People say, just come take hold on Christ. You can't do it on your own. There's none that calleth upon thy name. You see, sin is exceeding sinful now now I want to ask you a question how did we get that way how did we get that way and that brings us back to our article 4 where we say we believe in the doctrine of original sin and the answer to the question how we got that way is through the fall of Adam so let's look at who Adam was for a minute let's look at who Adam was and there's a concept called federal headship Federal headship that we as Americans ought to understand. And what that simply means is Adam was the federal head of humanity. And that that doctrine teaches us that as our federal head, Adam chose to sin. And therefore all humanity became sinners and are guilty before God because Adam was our representative. Remember what we said back over in Romans 5 that we read as our text this morning, verse 12. As by one man, sin entered into the world. That's how sin got here. Sin didn't get here because, you know, it got here a little bit with him and a little bit with someone else. It came through Adam. And by the way, it didn't get here through Eve either. You're going to see in a few minutes that Eve had some personal consequences to her sin. But Adam's sin had consequences for the entire creation and all of humanity. So by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. He was our representative. Over in, sometime you can turn there, you don't have to this morning. First Corinthians chapter 15 talks a little bit about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam was Adam. The second Adam was, uh, was Christ. And he says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, there's a representation there And really, there's only ever been two representatives. Just just keep that in mind. In the scripture, when you read about this kind of representation, there's really only been two, Adam and Christ. The first man, Adam, we're told, was a living soul. The last man, Adam, was a quickening spirit. Adam, Adam is used as a name for Christ there in that verse, but it's referring us to Christ as the second Adam. Now, I want to read you something that Arthur W. Pink uh, wrote. I thought it was pretty good on federal headship. Uh, I don't agree with Mr. Pink on all of his theology, okay? Uh, But he's he's close. He's pretty good on a lot of things. This is what he said about federal headship. Federal headship is a term which has almost entirely disappeared from current religious literature. So much the worse for our modern day. It is true that the expression itself does not verbally occur in scripture, yet like the words Trinity and the divine incarnation, it is a necessity in theological parlance and doctrinal exposition. The principle or fact which is embodied in the term federal headship is that of representation. There have been but two federal heads, Adam and Christ, with each of whom God entered into a covenant. Each of them acted on behalf of others, each legally represented as definite people, so much so that all whom they represented were regarded by God as being in them. Adam represented the whole human race. Christ represented all those whom the Father had in his eternal counsels given to him. That's what federal headship is all about. Adam was the federal head. He was the representative of the entire human race. And, you know, you think about it. We... Um, We ought to get that as Americans because when we elect a congressman, a representative to go to the U.S. Congress, the House of Representatives, um, they represent I think it's about about 700,000 people in each congressional district in the United States. So we elect someone from our district to go to the House of Representatives. The whole constituency from the district doesn't go up there. It's the one representative. And he may be a good representative or he may be a bad representative, but it's who we elected. He goes up there. And and so, for instance, if Congress declared war today, we could go around and say we are at war with Russia or whoever they declared war against. Go back to World War II. Congress declared war on Japan uh, on December 8th of 1941, and the whole country was at war. Only the representatives voted on it. The whole country didn't come together and start and vote on whether to go to war or not. But the, the Congress, the representatives voted, and we were bound by that. See, the same thing happened here in Adam. Now you say, okay, preacher, so we're represented in Adam. Why didn't you let me go over there and do it? Because I'd have sure done a better job than Adam. <laughs> I got news for you. I got news for you, child of God. You're nothing but Adam multiplied. You're Adam multiplied. You're, in other words, you're worse than Adam ever thought about being. <laughs> God created the right representative. You remember back over, just turn back over to Genesis chapter 1 with me for a minute. You remember at the end of the whole creative act, the whole creation work, in chapter 1 of Genesis in the 31st verse, God saw everything he had made. God, It's like he stopped to take account, and he looked around on that sixth day, and here's what he said, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that's the first verse we see that has the term very good in it. Up to this point, it had just been good. Every day had been, he saw it, it was good. He saw it, it was good. But you know what had happened after, after on, the, on that sixth day? On that sixth day, he made man. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message.